Hello, world. What's up? Hey. Hey. So I'm excited. You hit an octave, baby. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't go into the falsetto often, but I'm just like, excited. Your howdy voice, like howdy. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Ergo, uh, supposedly on WHPK ErgoRadio.com. I'm Kiss. What up, y'all? It's Damon. I'm here. We're uh, we're back in Ergo Studio B. Um, with a very special guest. I'm really excited about this week. I'm excited about all of them every week. Um, I'm excited I'm, just about every day. That, like, mm-hmm. You know, none of them are promised. So to have one of those and be here with you people. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a good thing. It's an exciting thing. It's a beautiful thing. A couple announcements up top. You want to talk about this weekend? Yeah, man. Uh, Freedom Square is has been quite an experience. So this Sunday, we've been collecting school supplies and uh, uniform pants, and we're doing a big back to school um, end of summer uh, transition out of the occupation of like sleeping there into figuring out new tactics um, towards raising awareness around prison abolition work, around legal detention and torture in the Holman Square facility, um, and also just continue to like love and, and stand for community um, and give out clothes, books, water, and food places. Um, so we're figuring out how to change tactics. So come out and celebrate. When is that? Sunday, the 4th. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much all day. Um, and also on that day at Freedom Square, Ergo alum Tweak's going to be shooting her new music video there. She she definitely wants folks to come out for that. So be there all day Sunday. It's going to be a beautiful thing. Also, Party Noirs happen Sunday. I don't know the times on that, do you? I'm sure yeah, you do. I don't know. All right. Well, look it up, people. There's, there's Twitter. If you're listening to this, you can figure out where Party Noir is <laughs> You also probably have gone. I feel like we have the crossover there pretty strong. Yeah, much love to the Party Noir folks. A couple other things coming up this weekend. Uh, well, just in general, Ergo alum Rick Wilson's new project, Soul Bounce, the EP just dropped yesterday. I haven't listened yet. Hey, I'm excited um, to check that out. But maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll throw some of that in on the Put podcast. Put that in there. Put that in there. We'll fix it in post. Uh, the other thing, uh, Ergo alum Saba and Akenya are performing with Joey Perp as uh, at Bottom Lounge on Saturday. It's a North Coast after show. Shout out to Saba. He was just on the cover of The Reader. Yeah, no. Yeah, he I, came through Freedom Square last week. Oh, did he really? Yeah, he came for Empowerment Fair. The whole Pivot Gang came. That, was he wearing his NERD hat? I feel like he only wears his NERD no, hat. but it was a similar... Maybe, maybe. All right. Anyway, let's get into it. So... <laughs> I love y'all. We can, we can break down Saba's fashion choices <laughs> together. We don't need to do that, just the two of us. So... We have a very uh, special guest. Ew, really ew. Ooh, I, I like you, you came with your own sound effects. That was so good. You're the first. We've done 57. You're the first guest to bring their own sound effects. I also them. just want to acknowledge that I think that was my best attempt at breaking glass. Did anybody hear the no, breaking do glass? One more time. That's pretty good. All right. All right. We're getting, um, we're getting shattering. There. Shattering. Our guest this week is a brilliant person who does a whole bunch of stuff. Um, that does that seem accurate? A whole bunch of stuff. Uh, let's see. Let, let's let's go down the list. All the things she acts. Comedian. She does stand up. She is a space maker. A program director. A program director. Uh, uh, a whole bunch of she's writer. A writer. A playwright. A, 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 pri- I, I, a revolutionary. Yeah, that too. Melissa, community pre- activist. Yeah, yeah. What, what did we what did we miss? Prevera, 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 percussionist. Percussionist. I think that's like should have came up earlier. I think that's what you collective collector of all things with palm trees and elephants on it. Wow. Yeah. Puerto Rican ambassador. I think you can like you could you give like Shirekan ambassador. Shirekan. Okay. All yeah. right. All right. Like yeah. that's if I you feel have like... any question, go to I actually 
we may have questions now. <laughs> if they're about food, I got you. If they're about food no, and, no, and I'm like, I, I sound like I'm being silly, but <laughs> I was about to go to Puerto Rico. Like y'all remember if you yeah. listen. Oh, and, yes, yes, yes. And like she gave me like the entire history of everything. Let me and, break like, down tourism yeah. for you in Puerto Rico. Don't. <laughs> Let me tell you all the places where you need to go to understand I this island. Stay a super touristy yeah. though, unfortunately. But that's fine. That's fine. At as least, long as you got a taste of it. At least you knew. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, I did know. <laughs> How are you feeling today? How's the world treating you? So How is you treating it? it? <laughs> no, we're, we're, it's we're all, all fire. real. It's all real because, we're you know, fire. we're all here. This is, this is how it's supposed to all go. three of us do amazing work in the world. Um, and all of us are just like here and present and so grateful for this day. Like you said, Damon, they are not promised. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we got to start. It's like take a Woo. breath and say thank you Whoa. and let's get to work. Um, so that was my day today. I woke up and said thank you and just trying to move through it. Um so today's kind of fun. I mean, like yeah. I'm starting here with you guys and then I'm on my way to an audition at PR Casting. And uh, Daniel and I were talking about this earlier of like how our audition process and how artists have to continuously find ways to hustle, to thrive. With the air quotes there around hustle. Yeah, hustle and thrive. You know, the grind is something that we continuously talk about as artists. Like, how do you have sustainability as an artist here in Chicago when it's so oppressive and half the time the politics around Chicago will put you in a position to be hypocritical or to at least have contradictory actions regarding your own politics oh, yeah. and your and your views. Like it forces you oh, to take came, jobs you don't want. She came to right? the show ready, people. Right. We're, 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 we're ready to <laughs> So let's talk about that. Like um as you know we we all kind of merge art and mm -hmm. overall humanity and like some people may call it social justice activism, whatever. Um why do you think like what would be one of the things that could like make it not so difficult to be a creative, loving person, right? Like if the fact that it is designed for there to be so much competition and so much scarcity for resources as mm. a creator, right? Like what are some of the ways that like, what are some of the first steps you would envision in your world where that is not so? Like how can we make that not be the case? Well, let's talk about some of the challenges in the industry let's first. Let's do it. Let's do so it. some of the challenges in the industry is Daniel and I were talking earlier. It was um, all we talked, of, a, we talked, we talked a little bit earlier, I'm but sorry. just like prefacing, we're, we're diving yeah, no. into it, right? <laughs> is, is that Chicago right now is coming up on a lot of shows that are being filmed live here right now. So you have all the Chicago shows, Chicago Med, Chicago PD, ah. Chicago Law, Chicago Fire, and all of them, APB, all of them are glorifying the Chicago Police Department in some way. So it's actively contrary to the to the work that we do in the world. So um, with that, they're saying, oh my gosh, all of these shows are bringing so many jobs to artists in Chicago. Actually, they're not. What they are doing is bringing jobs to production people to film the crews. The crews need like 100 people at least per show, but they only have available maybe a handful of roles to local Chicago actors. So for all of the shows that they have, there's maybe about 30 to 40 positions for active work for Chicago actors, which are by the tens of thousands. And there's so, also other actors from other cities competing for some of these. Right. So the lead runners in all the shows are going to be from L.A. and New York. So Chicago is a place that forces artists to go outside of the city to professionally develop in order to gain clout and and um, experience to be on those shows. So what does that say to begin with? And then to add to the question of like, how can it be easier for us? Well, it's never really going to be easy because the industry sets you up to fail. Honestly, like they are, they're always going to adhere to the industry standard 
when they want diversity, it's uh, the diversity or I call it like the quote, quote, the D word, right? (laughs) The bad D word of diversity. They don't know what that is because unless you have people on the other side of the room uh, and the writers and the production team, they are not providing you with stories of black and brown voices that have been marginalized or disenfranchised. So they are only asking for the diversity in the lens, which they know, which is always the white lens. Right. So So one like... There's a bajillion examples of that, of mm-hmm. course, but the one, everything that I know comes from Dave Chappelle. Mm-hmm. But the, so the sketch that they did, it was like- Everything that you know. Pretty <laughs> much everything. The sketch that they did, the like the real world sketch, mm-hmm. where basically they flip the thing about how there's always one mm-hmm. black person in the house full of white people. Mm-hmm. And then the black person like loses it because they're surrounded by crazy shit right, all the time. Right. So they flipped it and they have like the one really nerdy white guy. And so basically they made that sketch and Comedy Central- who basically let them do whatever they want was like, you can put this on. This isn't funny. We don't get it at all. It's not funny. Mm-hmm. They like not couldn't see why being the mm-hmm. only person of your race in a house full of people of a different mm-hmm. race would create tension. Like mm-hmm. they just, they didn't understand that. And so like when they, they put it on and just the setup like mm-hmm. killed mm-hmm. and the um, co-creator of the show, Neil Brennan, like went to the exec and was like, see, I fucking told you. Like he got like very angry. Mm. They just like couldn't even imagine what would be funny about that. So reimagining those spaces, reimagining the industry in a way that puts that voice forward, Mm. always from that personal experience is the reason why I do work now that is, um, that is done from a black and brown narrative, particularly around women. So doing brown girls with Sam Bailey when they create their own work, you know, creating your own work. It's the biggest hashtag that we have as artists is like hashtag make your own because the industry ain't going to do it for you. It's like trying to fix policing. You can't, right? You're not going to fix an institution or an industry that was not built for you. Um, So you build your own. So Sam Bailey's work with brown girls and you're so talented. Those are projects that, that are really fulfilling. Um, someone you might know, um, intimately Christiana Cologne, um, you know, doing Christiana Cologne's work. I I, I hear good things about her. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm in good Friday and it's probably been the most wonderful and challenging experience I've ever been a part of as an actor, because it is coming from the experience of violence towards women, the experience Mm -hmm. of intersectionality between black, brown and white spaces, institutional, racism, um, institutional sexism. So those are all projects that I think make it easier for me as an artist to participate in when they're coming from black and brown spaces. Let, let, let's dig deeper into, into Good Friday. Like how, like mm-hmm. you, you kind of gave like the, like the macro mm-hmm. look at like all that's covered. How, how has it been personally for you? Cause it's a very heavy show. Everybody go Super check it out. Heavy. In classic Ergo style, I haven't seen it. I'm going on Saturday. Okay, oh, for sure, slack for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming, it's coming on. Come on up. Come on up to the plate. Oh. Uh, all the kudos I had with Daniel right before the show whoo, just gone. over with. Disappeared. But, but how how's that experience so been? Like that experience. Tell, tell, tell people what you can about it and, and mm-hmm. for those who have not seen it. Um, I will give zero spoiler alerts because I have been on a zero spoiler alert. Um <laughs> law since it happened so if you haven't seen it please it's free um it's not always the most accessible as far as um transportation and getting there but if you can get there please do so um free tickets again um but it is an it's a brilliant and important piece of work it is exploring how women can 
and often try to take power in their own hands when systems in place aren't built for them. So um, how does one find revenge when violence is done toward them? And it's about sisterhood in a way mm. the, and, and questioning what sisterhood is. Um, it's about uh, multi, uh, generations of feminism and how it works, how it fails us. It's about um, institutions. It's about a lot of intersectionality, but mostly it's about seven women in a room trying to find justice mm. in some way. And all of the characters in this play were built to not be racially or ethnically specific. Mm. So it's been particularly interesting to have this cast put in these roles and for us to explore some of the very heightened, very charged language around it, being vessels, being um, people, actors with layers of language on top of us move through these spaces. And it's been quite effective in a lot of ways, some damaging, some real positive. Yeah. Um, I, I personally have post-traumatic stress disorder. I have PTSD from a home invasion that happened to me five years ago. Mm-hmm. And in this show, I have a gun to my head three times. Um, that's been challenging. Yeah. I walk away from the show, like putting on Disney Pandora and going straight into my onesie when I get home and like watching Disney movies <laughs> just to get into good, some good spaces. But that doesn't mean that I'm healing it just the show has just showed me that um mental illness is something that you cannot wash over i did not know that i still needed to be treated for ptsd and have an ongoing self-care practice around it so it's been uh it's been a blessing it's been really a blessing i'm i'm thinking as you're saying that about how i don't know i think often we or at least i like will challenge someone who is an art maker to be like Oh, but you know, we, you dismiss people as being like, oh, they're not really talking about anything or like to not dig into those really tough things Mm -hmm. and be like, oh, but that's what makes it worth or that that's a worthwhile Mm -hmm. thing. And I think now in hearing you say that it's just, it's a good reminder of like, maybe the reason why people don't is because it makes them uncomfortable and, and is really painful. Mm -hmm. Like it's like, I think we glorify in art, like, you know, putting your emotions on the page and being mm-hmm. vulnerable and all that stuff. And basically what that means is like, as consumers, mm-hmm. it's more fun that way. It's more engaging oh my gosh. that way. Yes. But, or it allows me to passively do that myself, right? So instead right. of dealing with my own vulnerability, I'm directly, gonna, you're I'm indirectly engage yours mm-hmm. as a way to like symbolically address mm-hmm. what I'm going through. Right. And it can be so a thing. To work for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that can be a great thing. That can be an amazing role for the artist, right? Is mm-hmm. that it brings someone into a moment where they can start to process mm-hmm. that for themselves. Um, but as you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, if there's anything that the last month mm-hmm. has taught me is how hard it is to embody and practice the ideas that you believe <laughs> um how have you you know you mentioned the the disney pandora and, and but beyond that and in addition to that like what are you doing that helps you feel okay in the world right now you know i am so funny that you mentioned that because like i was so pissed off when i first started this process because i was just like really is this what seven women on stage have to do bleed i gotta bleed i gotta cut myself and shoot myself for you to find uh, seven women on stage talking for 85 minutes interesting mm. like that's what we have to do right. i was so mad all, and in glenn gary glenn ross all they do is just talk for an hour but again that's men right you know that's, that's men saying. and it's, it's always been holding you know holding spaces for men 
and mm-hmm. you'll you'll sit through uh, waiting for Godot with two men having an existential crisis, mm-hmm. but you'll still sit through it and profit from it. Like theater makers profit from it. Mm-hmm. Theater makers have not traditionally profited um, from seeing women on stage and, and they don't invest in those stories. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't really um, invest in playwrights of color, particularly women of color. Mm-hmm. So I got really pissed off one day. I was like, you know, what is it about having to sensationalize our trauma in order for tickets to sell? And I was, I was having a really hard time with that. But then, um, you know, part of, part of it was like, this is a discussion that needs to be be had. These are conversations that have to be had. And part of that is making you uncomfortable, forcibly making you uncomfortable, but to explore and deconstruct the experiences that you're walking into the room, room with the ideologies that you're coming in with. And, mirroring them in such a way where it propels you to really deconstruct and have a firm and aggressive investigation with your personal self. Mm. Yeah. I kind of, so like this whole first like 15 minutes, we're kind of like talking about one central concept Mm -hmm. of like the access for marginalized folks be able to like storytell basically. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And coming off our episode last week, we had a very like, we was trying to be silly, but we had like the most structural conversation. Ever. Oh, yeah. We had like an urban planner on, right? Yes. And so like basically what it came down to is like, you want shit to stop being so bad, increase the supply of housing, mm-hmm. right? Like, and not determined by like mm-hmm. the price or the profit, right? Like just give people mm-hmm. more houses, right. more or less, right? Basically. Um, and so as we're talking about like creativity mm-hmm. and like just dealing with trauma as like a central need in society mm-hmm. um, and basically saying like the industry is so... So competitive, mm-hmm. right? So whether it's Chicago PD or whether it's these theaters, mm-hmm. there's just not enough slots in the private sector for no. creation. Um, do mm-hmm. Do you think? How? What do you feel about then, like publicly funded art? Right? Do you feel like that is a necessity, or is it? Is there something compromising about that? Because it seems like we just need to make more spaces mm-hmm. for people to be able to create and perform. Absolutely. So that's that's. Part of my role as the general manager of Free Street mm. now. I, that right? was a lob. Right? I threw the lob up there. Thank you. <laughs> Knocked it out the park. Thank you. Um, so there's, I, I've recently moved into a position of leadership uh, as the general manager of Free Street Theater, which was established in 1969, which was one of the first professional theaters in Chicago uh, next to Second City, predominantly white theater space, although they're not traditionally theater. Free Street Theater was the first theater to racially integrate and allow for black actors to get equity mm. to get their equity card yeah. what, they were the only place and, and what is equity for the for the, the layman of us out here um so actors equity is a union where performers uh contribute dues in order it's for like, certain it's protections like SAG for theater it's sag for theater yes absolutely so sag after is for actors in film and tv Actors equity is for theater. And so uh, Free Street was the only place for black actors to get equity cards. Wow. It was the first and only. So um, Free Street from its establishment, which was also established by a white graduate out of DePaul, white man, mm-hmm. um, Patrick Henry. So that sounds like a fable. Was that's like, a, yeah, I know. Patrick Henry. Isn't give me liberty or give me death. Exactly. That's the name of like, like some actual founding father. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. What's the name of the. Uh, John Henry. 
the, guy who built the thing. The, the black dude that yeah. built the railroad. That yeah. Died. John, John Henry. 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 Oh, yeah. I fucked with that. Joke. Right, right. So, <laughs> like, all of these things are interconnected. You can't tell me history does not repeat itself and cycles are what they are, cycles. Um, so, since its establishment, that's been their mission, providing mm. spaces. Yeah. Um, and also, Free Street Theater was an organization that did not normally take money from larger foundations or institutions that what they would do is they would travel on a truck, a tractor trailer and go to communities and perform and mm-hmm. have stories with and by for within various Chicago communities. So it was always rooted in people, whether you are a traditional actor or not. Um, going forward a little bit, there was an ensemble that was, um, was, producing and developing a show called Project. And they lived in Cabrini Green for 10 months and created stories with residents of Cabrini Green. And that project, the musical or the the play, the production went on to be very successful and is probably one of the most successful and well-known yeah. older shows from Free Street. So how, how, how does someone who's taking on um, management or leadership position adhere to that kind of mission of providing spaces for black and brown voices, um, but then moving towards the kind of structure that we have where the money that you get mm-hmm. is coming from white foundations or predominantly um, white subsidies where they are going to basically give you the capital, but you have to give them the credit. Mm -hmm. So free street will be holding spaces for that, but we are often funded by public endorsements. Um, Do we find some of that problematic? It depends. It depends Mm -hmm. on your politics. It depends on if you are conscious that you are taking money and redistributing power to provide and Mm -hmm. hold spaces for those voices. So I am learning how to do that. And I'm learning how to do that without getting mad and losing sleep. (laughs) You know, I was like, but this is funded by white money. Good. Also, you know, so is everything. So so is everything. Money is white money. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Everything that falls within like this capitalist regime and like how, how do you maintain your integrity by doing that? Well, you do that going into that relationship consciously. We don't lie to our funders. We say we do this for these people, for us for our Chicago communities, because we did it first. We've been here. Where have you been? You know, continue on the practice of providing for those black and brown spaces that are not going to be given room at large institutions. Larger institutions will go fishing for it because that will give them bigger money, but that's not what we're working towards. And that's not what y'all try to do. That's That's not what we try to do. So like Free Street will often be at the back burner of larger conversations around grassroots community theater making because why we're not larger institutions nor do we ever want to say that we are an institution but we do uphold our professionalism we do uphold the fact that we've been a professional theater doing this kind of work for 47 years um whether or not that's been with those kind of of y'all mama right right (laughs) so so like that so but you know it, it really pisses us off where students doing work for four or five years, getting this major funding for um, their theater companies in the form of like public access theater. We've been free since the get, like we've been free in all terms of it Mm -hmm. for the longest time and in holding space and doing work that's not written by white people. That is not single author work. We go out and do theater with 
for by within those communities. So it's it's legitimately their stories and having autonomy, authenticity with Chicago communities is very important to us that they are the tellers of their own stories. So for you as someone in those dual, you know, those million roles we talked about up Mm -hmm. top, but specifically in this role, you know, you, you talked before we turned the mics on about being, uh, in a lot, in, in some of your other work, a solo artist, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking about the, we, we've talked to other folks who mm-hmm. balance this like solo creation with this communal space making. Mm-hmm. Um, how do those. You do like one woman shows. Like, yes. Right. As solo. As and and stand which is as, yeah. as individual and not in a negative way necessarily, but it's one mm-hmm. person on stage with a microphone and a stool and a glass of water, or mm-hmm. a bottle of water usually. Yeah. If I went to a, a beer. show and there was a glass of water, I'd be a little nervous. Yeah. You don't know where that glass has been. Anyway, the-, yeah. <laughs> the, the And especially with me in a glass, I'm usually like humping a chair. So it's very likely some glass thing oh, on you're, stage you're, will you're break. Oh, you're a stool humper? <laughs> yeah. In the classic Def Jam tradition? Yes, I yeah. am a stool humper. Stool game bananas. <laughs> the first the first solo show that I tried to put on DVD, Sexomedy, um, it was great. It was the, I sold out a 300 seat house. Damn. It was fucking amazing. But my love broke. My love mic broke while I was humping the chair. <laughs> and from that point on, I was like, no humping is worth losing my audio yeah, for I the that, DVD. That, <laughs> like, you just got to get someone with a boom. You can, know? Can, yeah. can you go in a little bit more into that, to that show, into that experience? I feel like that was kind of like your, your big trampoline. Like I That was like my breakout. That. that was my breakout into um, solo work as a performer. Sexomedy was a nugget that was formed at Teatro Luna where we did one night stands where it was showcasing um, female artists in interdisciplinary performance. And one night we didn't have that many artists and we had so many positions to fill, so many slots. And they said, hey, Melissa, do you want to come do anything? I was like, I don't, I don't write. I, I act and tell dick jokes on the side. And they were like, great. Give us 15 minutes of dick jokes. That's a funny side hustle. By the yeah. Way. I tell dick jokes for like fun. Um, and so they were like, great. Give us 15 minutes of that. And so over a period of three shows, I had 45 minutes of dick jokes. Wow. Um, but then most of them were about like, not so much about dick jokes, but how much I love to masturbate and how self-love and self-care and positive body imaging was so important and it was basically an ode to my feminine rebellion against porn and um what it's like for real women to have sex and how men sometimes kind of like push back because they're so conditioned and so i'm like how am i supposed to really like release my whole sexual energy if this dude is complaining about my booty hair and um so i was like that was basically the premise of sexuality was was um a rebellion against what society deems as normal or sexually desirable for women. And it turned out to be like a year worth, a year's worth of workshop and development. And it's my first baby and it's my pride and joy because it's always a good time. It's not racially or ethnically specific. It is universal truths to men and women, but specifically cater to women to tell them how beautiful they are and how much they are fucking sexy as much as they as much as they may feel like they're not desirable or whatever that standard is they because they are they are beautiful so how how liberating like was that for real because Mm. to do that so publicly for so long and Mm -hmm. then to be like 
now associated with that idea, mm-hmm. with that exercise, right? Like, how, how did that change your life? Mm-hmm. Like, how did that change you from before, um, you know, before it, and after? Tip? It, it was it was really liberating. And um, a comedian, a comedy booker, one of the biggest comedy producers in the city was like, you're never going to make it as a, a comic if you don't clean up your act. And I said... Watch me. <laughs> That's also like a ridiculous statement. That's like to what they say in the movie. That's well, like, <laughs> right? Yeah, pack it up, kid. You'll never, you'll never cut it in the biz. The, well, they were basically like, telling me that I would, that. I wouldn't be able to. What he was saying is that I wouldn't be able to be so accessible. Like I wouldn't be able to pay, play churches and colleges right, college, because yeah. I'd have to have a clean five minutes, right. and I didn't have a clean five minutes. So I worked on getting a clean five minutes, but then every now and then I would just like. How far can I push this? How far can I push this? Sneaking a dick every once in a while. Right. What is clean? Yeah. What What is clean and by what standards? So like using bits of sexomedy helped propel my comedy world. Mm. And so part of that, they started to fuel each other. So I would write new pieces and then I would put them in sexomedy and then I would take sexomedy pieces and put them in my standup. And I started to fuse and then I started creating my own voice as a comic. So by creating sexomedy was just so cathartic to me as like, as a woman who yeah, I'm Puerto Rican. I have a lot of hair everywhere. Okay. And it's, it's a struggle and I shouldn't be talking about this struggle and beating my own self about it. Like I should be voicing that getting support from other women. And then by turn changing mindsets of my partners to be more accepting and, and, Mm. and finding even pleasure, like going as far as finding pleasure around like, maybe we shave together or like maybe you stroke that shit. Maybe you want to condition it. So maybe it was you make like little curly Q mustaches, right. you know, all kinds maybe of we do some fun stuff with it. But it, it was <laughs> it was liberating on a lot of levels personally, but professionally I was really sinking into I have a voice. I have things to say. And the more that I say them, the more people will attach their reality to mine. And I will never lose in that game. Being authentic and being unapologetic in my authenticity and my hairiness was going (laughs) to set me free. And there's a, there's kind of a a myth that like stand up is a space where that can always happen. But I think it can like that kind of honesty and authenticity can happen for some folks. And Mm -hmm. it can happen for like the people who get to really tell Mm -hmm. it like it is are, Mm -hmm it's a that's a very mm-hmm. that's guys who get to do that basically on stage and and, yeah. and, and operate outside of that gaze uh so i'm curious at least you can't get talk about whatever right, right. and male and, and comedy is such a male-dominated shout, shout profession though, that's my man. so yeah shout out to and also hannibal burris because like I, i've been seeing him on i opened for him he actually opened for me accidentally like he came to joe's on wheat street one time nice. and we were doing like this huge comedy lineup and he just showed up one day and yeah and he went in before me and then I went after him I was like y'all Hannibal Burris just opened for me (laughs) (laughs) that was like the highlight of my career it was really amazing (laughs) but you know just just doing that comedy um you you start to you start to think about yourself in relation to a, a white male dominated um profession and then you think well what ways can I set myself apart or what in what ways can can I, as a comic, say something else? Yeah. And so my second work was called Sushi Frito and it's still in development. And Sushi Frito was like, all right, I'm going to put the dick jokes aside for one second because I love uh, it. 
But I'm going to talk about intersectionality, right? I'm going to talk about me as a progressive Latina holding on to traditional values and pushing back against patriarchy. I'm going to talk about what it is for me as a as a Humble Park native to date a gentrifier. I'm going to talk about me as a as a, a woman of color who actively seeks healthier lifestyles and brunches and how that's such a white thing. I'm going to talk about how mental illness is something that's not accessible to me. Mm. So those those are the kinds of pieces that I'm working on now. And make it funny somehow. Sometimes I feel like that's a priority and sometimes I have to just mm. put that aside. Like yeah. sometimes I ha- sometimes I have to sacrifice the comedy, but when you're if you're real and authentic, it's going to be funny. Right, we were talking It's going to be funny. We were talking before about like there's so there's the difference between like the dick joke and the cosmic joke, right? Yes. So like if you get super open in the way that you're describing mm-hmm. and, and and you create like what you were just describing. And I'm excited to like see that as it comes together, the the humor is less like about the punchline and it's more about like the relatability. Exactly. And, and, and the, the universal more, truths, the more specific you get, the more relatable it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's like, that's what makes people laugh when they go like, Oh yeah, that's me. Yes. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about being, you know, some of those themes that you just mentioned and, you know, we're sitting right here, Pearson Spaulding, uh, Humble Park Heights. You used to live. Used to live right around the corner. Um, you couldn't pay people to live on this side of the park in the nineties. Like you couldn't, and now it's Humble Heights, or it's yeah. always been Humble Heights. But you know, we're Daniel and I were just looking across the street, and we're seeing these new condos, and we're seeing a lot of this new development. I'm like, oh man, they never had like paved parking lots around here before and it's all cleaned up and we were asking each other i'm like you know when did we really start seeing so many white people when did, around basically, when did when did i show up is, yeah. is so this is my question is i also think yeah, i blame daniel single-handedly for yeah, this no, it's, it's just me he, i do too he's the face of, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i he's do the too child. yeah well he's not he's actually a little too young to be the poster child for the wave of gentrification that started you're you're on the you're on the back end, but you're like coming right not, through the door. Be like, I'm here. It's generational <laughs> now. Um, but I think a lot of the times when these when that story gets told, mm-hmm. uh, at least in like the white spaces where it gets told, we erase that the neighbor that there was a neighborhood that existed before we showed up. Mm-hmm. So before we, I, I do want to talk about what that uh, violence is looking like in this neighborhood. Before that, can you tell me a little bit about like? What was this neighborhood to you growing up? What are the spots, the personal landmarks for you mm. in Humble Park that now, uh, when you think about this neighborhood and you think about where mm. you're from, mean everything to you? Um, this neighborhood has a lot of historical significance to me as far as legacy in my family. Um, my uncle, Francisco Dupre, was one of the um, founding members of the Barreto Boys and girls club he was like one of the major key workers in organizing that facility so that way young people of color within the neighborhood had a safe place to go to develop to do their homework to play games to be active um also i come from a long line of educators and um there's a school humboldt von humboldt slash dupre um It's it's a closed down school. Is one of the one of the schools that was closed fifty five and under the Rahm administration recently. So that's part of our legacy in Humble Park. Um, also, you know, my my family is from here. Um, my Dupre side, also, as well as my maternal side, both 
Puerto Rican, large Puerto Rican families that started off near Cabrini Green, where Puerto Ricans first settled over by Lakeview. You know, that was their first areas. And then they started gradually, gradually pushing west, pushing west until we took this from the Polacks. And <laughs> and we said, you know what, we're not going any further west. We're staying right here. And we established. Um, so back in 19 in the 1960s, my family came from Puerto Rico and they settled here as well. Um, so it's just this is all I've ever known. I was born and raised in Humble Park. I went to school in Houston um, because in the 90s, there was a lot of violence, a lot of gang initiations happening here, particularly around where we're living right now, Spalding, um, Division, Wabansia, Rockwell, all of these areas were high points of crime. And we could always talk about why crime exists and why crime has, has erupted in such a way and the need for that kind of illegal entrepreneurship is what I call it. It was like, this is, you know, ways of making money that are always contrary against government because of inaccessibility to black and brown people, especially around education. Um, but it became very, very dangerous to live here in the nineties. Um, and my mother took me to Houston to do a lot of my public school. And I would come back here in the summer times and spend three months just running the streets yeah. like a little hot ass. And we were talking about like alley life. Like yeah. I was an alley kid. I was raised playing with my cousins in the alley and being on the stoop till like 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. But stoop life all day long. Um, so community was a huge thing. And I felt like I was in I was deprived and in a desert literally in Texas mm -hmm. until I had to come back and reengage and be um part of the community member that I was supposed to have been always supposed to have been. What do you mean by that? What, 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 what was the role that you felt like you were supposed to have been? Um, well, because I wanted to really follow along in this Dupre legacy, like my, my uncle who had worked in uh, the Beretta boys and girls club, you know, making safe spaces, making open spaces. And then he gradually moved into the Chicago, the board of CPS to um, make sure that black and brown kids were getting to school. He was organizing their bus routes and trying to get free buses for most of the schools that normally wouldn't have access to it. Um, also, there is an alternative learning center called the Pedro Albizu Campos High School, mm -hmm. which is an alternative to Clemente, where there was it's just a different approach to education where they pump out activists. They pump out people that are going to be caring about their community. And it's it's a ninety nine percent graduation rate pipeline to Northeastern. So mm -hmm. things like that, where I feel like this community has active generations of resistance yeah. towards institutionalized education and also our government. Yeah. I just needed to be back to where a lot of the work happens mm -hmm. and my family is here. So being a part of Humble Park has always been embedded in me and there's no other place that I'd rather be. I've, I, ever since I graduated from college, I've lived here. I've lived in Humble Park specifically and I, I don't foresee myself leaving because Part of part of who I am as a Puerto Rican um, is embedded in this community, this particular culture, and part of who I am as like you know an open, aware, I, I want to say conscious person is still in this community that does so much work to push back against you know these these very horrible capitalist imperialist regimes. Puerto Rico is going through a huge crisis right now, right. Mm -hmm. and just to be as as close to our own Puerto Rican people that are aware of that because, you know, we have some conditioned Puerto Ricans. Like we're not going to, we're not going to lie. Like there are, there are a lot of people here in humble park specifically that are very exclusive, meaning that they want 
for their own right. only. And there's parts, there's parts of our campaign for No Se Vende, like trying to keep Puerto Ricans in Humble Park and, and push back against gentrification. What they're pushing is sometimes anti-white and anti-black narratives, mm. where if we looked at the bigger macro picture, it's about commodities, right? It's all at the end of the dollar. Who can own their home? Who can afford to stay? I, as a Puerto Rican, can barely afford my own rent. And that's the biggest problem is that we're getting pushed out because we do not have the economic resources or the education around buying homes and, and being financially responsible or, or even accountable. Or historically, or even present day, like able, able to get the foot. We don't have access. Yeah. We don't have access. Redlining came yeah. from from funders not allowing for black and brown right. people to get right. loans for their homes. I, I, I like literally what you said about being connected to this community locally connects you to like mm-hmm. the imperialist struggles right. on the island. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you talk more about how the the resistance here mirrors the mm-hmm. like larger mm-hmm. Puerto Rican resistance o- overall on, I know also on the international state? We're running up against time. So whenever you need to. Yeah, no, no, no. Happy to talk about it. Um, I think that I think the mirroring comes from wanting to keep and be an independent community, right? Wanting to make sure that we're established and that we're strong and that we're communal, sustainable, and self-sufficient. Um, we have Puerto Rican arts committees, we have alliances, we have um, business communities that are all trying to make this little pocket of community sustainable and reliable. I think that particular mission mirrors what Puerto Rico is going to as far as like um, trying to gain independence and trying to be a self-sustaining um, entity, a self-sustaining country, really. Mm-hmm. Um, because what's happening right now is between the PROMESA Act, where um, outside Congress people are being charged with fixing Puerto Rican economy, doesn't make sense. And it doesn't give Puerto Ricans the autonomy to um, find their own sustainability and advocate for themselves, the things that they need. That's similar, right? But that is a very complex, um, supercharged, active, emergent, urgent kind of responsibility that Puerto Ricans have to take their back their own liberation. Mm-hmm. So um, I think part of the... <laughs> This is a, on a larger scale, like part of part of why Cuba Cuba resisted um, uh, any kind of American help. It, you know, they stood strong, and their resistance was active. And if you go to Cuba, nobody there is going to tell you that they had it rough because they, there's no basis of comparison. Mm. They're not corrupted by capitalism. They're not corrupted by consumerism. They sustained, and now it's going to be open to whatever kinds of damage that might happen. Um, but for Puerto Ricans specifically, it's always about making sure we have our own land, our own mm-hmm. voice, our own um, responsibility to ourselves. I think that this community though has always had some problematic narratives when it comes back to like resistance work where it can be super super exclusive mm-hmm. it can be super exclusive and in what ways in ways in ways that and this is <laughs> i i haven't explored this enough because i feel like there's only a, like a handful of people that i've actually been able to talk about this with. it was like mm-hmm. why do i feel wrong in this resistance somehow why do i feel like this this sentiment of anti-whiteness or anti-blackness is wrong i think that we we don't 
find solidarity enough. I think that there's a lot of relationships that we have um, excluded from other Puerto Ricans that might be able to have places of access to help. Um, I think that I think that we kind of exclude ourselves politically in a, in a lot of situations for the community. Um, I I don't know the answer to that but yet. Something doesn't feel right. Something something to me in my heart of hearts um, doesn't feel right in the ways that we do our resistant work in this community because I don't think it's rooted in love. Mm. I don't think it's rooted in like openness. I think that there's still a lot of anger and there's a lot of resistance work and the love is exclusive only to certain Puerto Rican peoples that, that have the ideals. It's not opening. It's not opening to other Puerto Ricans that might be still conditioned. Mm. And it's not as open to people who um, make like like, freedom square has an awareness Mm-hmm. policy right like they spend a lot of time educating and a lot of circles a lot of campfire circles that are that are open to um talking to people about misogyny racism sexism like all of these things that can be poisonous and toxic to resistance they're talked about openly we don't have that kind of same structure in the communities that are held by more than a handful of people it's too small mm-hmm. Well, I think I think that's a really interesting point. And I think it's something that's been just in the time that I've spent, you know, over the last 41 days. It's kind of the biggest challenge. And it, the reason why it happens, one is because it's intentional that people mm-hmm. sit around the campfire and talk. Two is because you, there is no choice because these things are playing out in real time. Right. Right. So it it it, mm-hmm. it becomes very much about like, how are we embodying these mm-hmm. things? Because they're being put mm-hmm. in practice right there. So in the interest of like trying to keep things mm-hmm. uh, going, you have to be confronting those. You can't mm-hmm. go, uh, we'll just push that to the side because it's mm-hmm. so glaring. I mean, does that seem right, Dame? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the importance of like action, mm-hmm. action yeah. that is like um, directly connected to the people, mm-hmm. right? That are experiencing the things that the mm-hmm. action is inspired based off, right? So if you're actively trying to help people mm-hmm. that are dealing with divestment, mm-hmm. right? Dealing with over-policing, dealing with incarceration, mm-hmm. dealing with housing crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you have these values of creating a new world in the mm-hmm. name of fixing that, then all harm needs to be addressed like immediately. Exactly. And, and so, and, and with the people mm-hmm. that need to be centered in the work, right? And so, with that, like we could get really political about things and sometimes we move too fast on the theory mm-hmm. or on the legislation or on the structure mm-hmm. um, and don't deal with like the real human consequences of the system, yes. right? Uh, for better or for worse um, and the harm and the trauma, mm-hmm. right? So that's what I think I've learned the most mm-hmm. is that in order to, in order for any life to matter, right? Like we have to really address what those lives have been through and what those conditions have created mm-hmm. first and foremost because- even more public funding, even like better legislation won't undo like genocidal practices, right? And mm-hmm. like the trauma that that creates and the psychological impact of that. Which is why I think that there's a huge difference between Puerto Ricans and the struggle in Puerto Rico, which is an immediate action versus what's happening here in this community, mm-hmm. which is also based off of an understanding that if you're in the States, you are you are directly dealing with privilege and consumerism and commodity. Like gentrification what it boils down to is commodity, what you own and what you don't. And so you, when you're working within the States, you're working within the conversations of what the States are dealing with versus what a Commonwealth 
and, 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 and their autonomy in general. Is I mean, you, it's it's this dual context, right? Mm-hmm. Of how do you connect it to resistance there, mm-hmm. and then how does it fit into you know, uh, the 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 way that these all these same themes mm-hmm. play out across mm-hmm. the city. Um, so for you, yeah, city council is like Congress, right? One day, one day, a massive awake tribe of Puerto Ricans are going to go back to Puerto Rico and create a colony or like, you know, this one beautiful dystopian society. Pretty good. <laughs> right? I like it. You do, you get like, you, you do the, um, the okie doke where it's the same day as the parade, right? So everyone goes to the parade and then you sneak Shoot. around through the back end <laughs> boom, you're gone. <laughs> But half those people at the parade are waving a flag and don't know what that means. Yeah. Like those, those are the kinds of people. Are like you we're not with the parade with the parade now. I lead the damn parade. <laughs> <laughs> Three years in a row, I've led the damn parade. Yeah. Um, except the last par- this this most recent parade, I was actually in Puerto Rico celebrating, and I'm like, there's no better way to celebrate Puerto Rico and its loveliness than to not yeah. be there, right? Yeah. So, um, I was actually there, but I've led the parade. I have so much pride for my people. I have so much pride, but I it's a pride. And and such a desire and urge, and I'm passionate about decolonizing those minds. Real, real quick, I, I know we're like getting close to winding down, but that's something I really want to talk about. Right. It's like you going back and forth and your connection actually to the island, and like mm-hmm. how often do you go, and what are, what are what are your landmarks there? Mm-hmm. What is home like for you there? Because you 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 yes. call that home as well, right? I do very much call it home. And I think that any Puerto Rican who doesn't hasn't been yet. And I think that they long for it. And I think Puerto Rico is a whisper that you hear as a baby and it's your mother calling to you. So like everything is home Mm -hmm. when you're there and you feel it. There is a palpable sense of connection to your mother's spirit when you get there. When I get there, speaking from a personal experience, I've always had a connection ever since I was a baby. I was brought there. Um, I think that part of my landmark is where my my grandmother grew up. So my family's from Arecibo or Barceloneta. And they're like in the middle of the island at its northernmost coast. So I think that's where I spend a lot of my time, but I'm slowly, I'm slowly falling in love with the island all over again. Mm-hmm. So we have some of the most beautiful natural wonders in the world and they're there. Th- three out of the seven iridescent bays um, mm-hmm. are in Puerto Rico. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm in my very brief, very touristy experience, mm-hmm. like just the idea of home that, that mm-hmm. you talked like how poetic you were, like, you know, a mother's whisper. I had a connecting flight from Florida. Yeah. And so I was basically like, Visibly to me, I felt like I was the only non-Puerto Rican on the flight, right? <laughs> and but that's a problem, and, right? Because there's a spectrum. Yeah, I'm black, you're right, black, right, like. Right. But but that's how I felt. Like just you know, mm-hmm. it, it was a mostly Spanish-speaking flight and everything. Yeah. You know, like generational, right? Yes, so yes, it was, yes. It was like families coming from Florida mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. home or vice versa. Yes, yes, right? yes. And like there was a celebration when the plane landed. Right? Every like they, time it they started lands, singing a song, they clap. And like, they, but then like a song broke out. Mm-hmm. Like it was like a party on the plane. Mm-hmm. It was just like, wow, I've never. And it just clicked for me. Like, oh, these people are like going home with their mm-hmm. family. It would be like three to four generations. It's just like mm-hmm. the joy that that. So it was palpable. And that's I wouldn't, a, yeah, that's I would, an amazing thing. The thing is about that. Like, no one does that going to Cincinnati. No one, <laughs> no one, no one does that. But like, or, think about the think about the generations of uh, of removal from our ancestry. All right. So like, if if a fifth generation African American goes back to Africa, would they have that same sense right. of a return to home? as someone who is recently migrating and going back and forth because land has been stolen or we've been shipped. Like 
there are 5,000 people per month leaving the island right now because of lack of resources, income, school closures, um, the the the, um, the internal infrastructure of the government. A gallon of milk costs $6. Like they are forcing Puerto Ricans to leave their home. So the return to home is so much more, it's, it's very recent and it's, it's, um, it's a certain feeling of, this is a paradise where you can't stay. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel a huge heartbreak for Puerto Ricans in general who one have never known their mother and two can't settle with that. They'll never be able to live there the way that it is now. And then simultaneously, not to get all dark towards the end, but then at the same time, like then their adopted homes are they getting pushed out of those too? Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, we like where we are right the, now. So the, it's like literally, yeah. where do we go? Yeah. Puerto Ricans are, are very better, sensitive. Are right? there a better place in the states mm-hmm. to go? Like of those five thousand a month, are they all mostly coming to the states, or is like? Well, Canada, the running joke now is like, what's the that? capital of Puerto Rico? And it's Brooklyn. But <laughs> <laughs> be, no, it's, it's the Bronx. Let's be it's honest. The, it's with the Bronx. Cool. It used to be. Um, yeah, true. It used to be, but like you know, again. Like Puerto Ricans in the States, um, Tato La Viera, who recently passed away, is a very prolific Puerto Rican poet and says Puerto Ricans are ni de aquí, ni de allá. They're not from here or from there. Um, we've never had our own home as our own. So when we get pushed out of a place where we've established as our home, it's a very sensitive issue for Puerto Ricans because if not here, then where? So for you, I'm thinking specifically in your craft and in your space making, uh, what does it mean to be working towards creating home right now? Like for you both in terms of all of that culturally, but just for you, like what, what, what's the home you're trying to make? Yo. So this is such a personal thing for me. Cause I, um, it's a personal thing because I, I have been thinking about what home means to me and I, I'm very particular about my home. My home is my sanctuary. My apartment is a, is a, a fairly large apartment that I've um, established as my sanctuary. And I also, I often joke, like I'm a domestic Rican. Like I love my home life. And I think being rooted is always something that I translate from my Puerto Rican culture and also interpersonally, like I'm desperate to be rooted. I'm desperate mm. to be um, in partnership and I'm desperate to have legacy. Like I would really, Sushi Frito talks a lot about me trying um, to create a family and not being su- successful at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had six miscarriages. And through that, through that journey, I'm finding that that want for home life or to be, have this maternal instinct, it's, it's such a connection to my ancestry. So like I had a reading, <laughs> I had a reading with my brujo, my, with my, my, um, I call her my senora. And my readings are always like, your ancestors are really upset with you. You're not listening. You're not listening because what's happening now is that as you get older and you have a deeper connection to the reason why you're put on this life cycle is to fulfill something. And when your ancestors talk to you and be like, Hey, you're not fulfilling why you, your purpose in life, why you're here. And part of that is like through my, through my, my religion, my, my, um, my spiritual practice being rooted and having a direct spiritual practice through um, Puerto Rico and by way of Africa is my sense of like knowing exactly who I am and why I'm here. So like the sense of being rooted for me is about doing the work it takes to heal mm-hmm. my family and, and cyclical trauma and for me as a woman, like 
I will be fulfilled once I start doing what my ancestors are telling me to do. Mm. And there's a reason why I'm an artist because my ancestors told me I was going to be an artist. There's a reason why like I'm, I haven't, I'm seeking certain things and it's because I'm doing the work that I was, I was always meant to do. And I think by being grounded in, in my culture allows me to hear the voices of my ancestors more clearly and, and have my walk of life be laid out for me in a very clear way. Yeah. It's cool. Cause you know, we spent the first 15 minutes of the show talking about all this, like industry stuff of how it's all mm-hmm. messed up and you know yeah you can't fight that right but then now we're talking about the stuff that actually like all of not to say that that other stuff doesn't matter or isn't real mm-hmm. but now we're talking about the stuff that makes i could imagine it possible for you to keep dealing with that bullshit basically yeah, yeah. Like, this is all so inconsequential <laughs> to the reason why i make the things yeah I that's yeah. and that's been like a transformation i've been going through mm-hmm. like now of like moving from the political or the idea mm-hmm. to the human and yes into you know to the individually human and how mm-hmm. that connects to the collective thing or to the macro mm-hmm. um energy humanness the 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 need to get back to our humanity and the need to for us to like humble ourselves and and come down from a place of like heightened political ideology because we could work from that but like right. that is that is pushing up against the monster that will never be broken right. but what, we have to create right like you have to create resist always no you have to you reimagine have to the, spa- the spaces you have to make your own like hashtag make your own and how do you reimagine space and it's like that's why i feel like what we're seeing right now has to be rooted in a sense of love and a deep commitment to each other and i think that's what we're lacking sometimes and when we find ourselves resisting resistance mm-hmm. is because we're not connecting with each other and we're definitely not connecting with the people who came before us and the pain yeah. that happened until we try to like resolve that pain and, and heal that pain too, yeah. yeah the joy like we will never find the joy if we don't heal the hurt people and the people the things that were broken before us but it's it, again like we talked about up top it's it's vulnerable and it's difficult and it puts you in places where yeah. you're hurting um mm. That's so like, as we wrap, we're talking, we were talking about like that being the work and the separation. I I don't like the idea of like work-life balance, the way people talk about, like Mm -hmm. you go to your job and then you go and you do other stuff. I don't Mm -hmm. think that matches up for any of the three of us, Mm -mm. but I do think the idea of balance is key. Um, So for in doing that processing and in that healing and in that creating, uh, where do you, does it give you energy? Does it drain you? Because mm. I think we're, you know, talking in a moment where I know Damon, you are to a lesser degree. I am, you know, drained. This month has been a, a hard month. Mm. And I know it has been for you too with the play and everything. But like mm. how, beyond looking for things outside of the work to give you the mm. energy and the and the joy, what are the pieces in all of those million kinds of work that you mm. do that that are the restoring pieces that you can always go back to? Well, two things. Um, I think that, you know, we were having conversations about the life balance and um, the shift that I've had this year that's really um, dominating my life is the fact that now my art is my work life. And working in artist communities has, um, I'm I'm very lucky, not lucky. I'm very blessed because I've worked towards it, right? Um, I've worked towards that and someone has given me the opportunity. Thank you, Koya Paz and Carolyn O'Boyle, Free Street Theater, um, given me the opportunity to have my life be the work. 
But now that that's there, it how do you separate that work time for your self-care practice? So the second part of that is it depends on your person, right? It depends on you personally. I'm an extrovert. I recharge off of my energy with people and being in social situations and having interactions. That's how I recharge. Introverts, however, need to recharge in solitude and need to recharge in spaces so that way they can prepare to go into social situations and interact with people and also recharge from that interaction. So I think it really depends on how you move through the world. And if you know yourself, if you know what you need in order to do that kind of work, then you do that because I can't be prescriptive and say like, you need a better self care practice, mama. You need to like meditate in the morning and do all that's not for everybody. Um, And I think that finding your own journey in that is also a beautiful thing. I found that, you know, as much as I want to meditate, I can't sit still as much as I want to have (laughs) a better spiritual practice through, through the Yoruba religion. I don't have $10,000 just to like go through my sainthoods. So like, (laughs) right. So like I'm over here busting coconuts in my house because I get them from Cermak for a dollar, (laughs) but that doesn't mean my, my spiritual rootedness is, is missing. But like I, those are the kinds of things that allows me to do the work. It's like my connection through my spirituality allows me to always have an anchor in love and humanity. So I think the balance is always personal and um, customizable, right? And I think it just depends on how you move through the world and if you know yourself. If you know that you need eight hours of sleep, go find your eight hours and then do your work. And listen to that. Yeah. Right. Listen to your body. Listen to what your life calls. But you you can't you can't forget that your work is always going to call you no matter what. So you could turn off your phone. You could turn off the ringer. But if you are going to be the type of person that is like you can call me 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night and I will answer, then that's that's the calling that you need to do. You just have to make your boundaries. You know, you have to make those those hard lines in the sand and say, this is what I'm willing to do and willing to be available for. This is what I can't do in order for me to be available to you. Like, so no is not always a negative thing. No is like, I can't do this. So that way I, I, I won't wear myself down to be accessible to you at another, at another point. It's really hard to learn this. I mean, I think you're learning mm-hmm. that more than anyone day. Like how hard I'm not to yeah. project. I'm just projecting yeah, that, but nah. it seems like that's the challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nah. We can talk about that. But that's why human capacity is 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 more important than anything else. Like you have to find people that will have that capacity. And that's what I hear is like there needs to be more people to ask. Right. We and just need more people. You need basically. more people. It we always need more people and that will always be more important than money or things. So before we get any better than yeah. that. How can uh how can the people where can the people find your work? Oh my goodness. So plugs, here plugs, hear my plugs, plugs. hear my plugs. <laughs> Don't call me. <laughs> Don't email me. <laughs> Don't fake no, I I'm always on Facebook. So <laughs> Just in my I'm, Facebook. I'm forever on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook as Melissa Dupre slash performer. Um and I am always at Free Street. I live seven minutes away. Um I'm I'm actually trying to send my love towards free street way whatever whatever pull or capacities i have as oh no an you're, artist. About to, you're about to blow up now we we you you were right there we put you on this put it over no the way uh yeah so find me at free street on free street's page and also um i am going to be doing sexomedy part two the second coming <laughs> 
because you know with all this uh, with all this real rooted work with all the social activism work or artivism work you have you, you still need dick jokes in your life and that's what I'm finding so look out for that in summer 2017 which will be at Free Street Sushi Frito the, the world premiere the final like incarnation I think will also be at Free Street so I'm gonna be doing a lot of my work out of Free Street so if anybody wants to find me they can look me up there sounds like you found an artistic home Holler. Hey, <laughs> much love to the people. Follow us on Twitter at Ergo Radio, Instagram, Keep People Podcast mm-hmm. uh, from the archives. We're now posting every Tuesday from mm-hmm. the Ergo archives. So Ooh, you can go back like and listen. Like yep. It. And uh, free Oscar Lopez Rivera and all my love to the people in the struggle and resistance in Puerto Rico right now. Much love to you. Talk to you next week. Much love.